Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob, Surely I will not come into the tent of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 230, The Search for the Temple. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Chicago. Long has my hometown been known as a utopia among cities. Its balmy weather is second to none. Its premier baseball team has a rich and unalloyed record of triumph. And during the 1920s, a group of Chicagoans, purely out of a sense of civic duty, produced alcoholic beverages on behalf of the entire country. Now, all right, this is a joke, ladies and gentlemen. But it is true that Chicago boasts not only one of the most celebrated restaurants in America, but also one of the most unusual. Its name is Alinea, and it is overseen by Chef Grant Achatz. What Achatz seeks to do is not only to produce delicious food, but to utilize other senses to define the meal. As the chef puts it in the Netflix series Chef's Table, all of the best cooks can produce delicious food. At Alinea, they seek to cure it in experience. Achatz channels and combines not only flavors, but also sight, smell, sound, and surprise, so that the wonder suffusing the entire evening defines the meal itself. Thus, the TV series shows how a dish is placed not on the table, but on a pillow filled with nutmeg, so that every time one cuts into the food, another tiny puff of enchanting aroma emerges at every bite. A chicken thigh wrapped in kombu is placed inside small chips of wood disguised within it, The wood is lit on fire in front of the diners. They assume it is there to roast something else over it, only to discover that another course has been cooking before them the entire time. Apple taffy is actually filled with hydrogen and turned into a balloon so you can eat it, and much more. The series further describes how Achat suffered a bout of tongue cancer and lost a sense of taste. So his cooking was a bit like Beethoven composing the Ninth Symphony while he was deaf. But this temporary loss forced Achat's to further ponder how all other aspects of life impact eating. And when he got well, he did a restart on the restaurant. His focus was still on how aspects external to taste impact the meal, but now the focus was more on emotion. The New York Times reported, quote, Mr. Achatz, 42, said his cooking would rely less on the pyrotechnics of molecular gastronomy that he favored as a 30-year-old. These days, he said, it's about less shock value. What intrigues him now is how to enhance the dining experience by evoking emotions. A good cook will understand nuances in layers of flavor through seasoning. Maybe it's acid, spice, bitterness, Mr. Achat said in an interview at the restaurant. We want to keep that going. How do you season with sound, with light, with elements of emotions? For us, that makes the experience more complex and nuanced. End quote. Achatz further tells the Chef's Table series that, quote, we treat the emotional components of a meal as a seasoning. You add salt, you add sugar, you add vinegar, you add nostalgia, end quote. And this highlights something important which is that it is more than the five senses that define the experience of a meal. And it is with this in mind that we can ponder anew a famous story in the Talmud. Rabbi Joshua was once asked, we are told, by the emperor of Rome, why does your Sabbath meal smell so wonderful? What do you Jews have that others do not? Rabbi Joshua responded that tavlin echad yesh lanu shemo. We have one spice and it is known as the Sabbath. And we place that inside the dish. The emperor asked, could I please have some of this spice? And Rabbi Joshua replied that this spice could only be experienced by those who observe and embrace the Sabbath. This is not a simple story. It is sublimely spiritual and profoundly political. 
It seeks to highlight that while some societies cultivate an aesthetic appreciation of pleasure, Jews are first and foremost called to seek a sense of sanctity. And it is the presence of that sanctity that defines all our other experiences, including eating. And that is why a psalm about the temple in Jerusalem can allow us to also understand one of the most important biblical passages about eating, one which captures the mysterious mystical nature of Jerusalem itself. Before we look at this psalm, let us turn back to the Torah. Deuteronomy chapter 12 informs Israel that God will select one spot on earth where all offerings must be brought, where celebratory sacrificial meals must unfold, and through which truly joyous eating experiences will take place. Verse 5, But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come, and thither ye shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and heave offerings of your hand, and your vows and your freewill offerings and the firstlings of your herds and of your flocks. And there ye shall eat before the Lord your God, and ye shall rejoice in all that ye put your hand unto ye and your household, wherein the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. So, seek out the site of the habitation of the divine. Sacrifice there. Eat of your offerings there. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we know the place of which Deuteronomy speaks, the place that God will ultimately choose. But while these very verses speak of a site, The Bible does not explicitly name it. We know today, of course, where the description of these sacrifices will be reified. While there will be a tabernacle in Shiloh for some time, it will ultimately be in Jerusalem that sacrifices will be brought, where sacrificial meals will truly be enjoyed, as Jews dine with the divine, and his sanctity suffuses these meals. Yet the Torah does not tell us that first I will reside in Shiloh, and then you will ultimately go up to Jerusalem. What it seems to say is, Seek out God's presence, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and there you shall come. There bring your burnt offerings. There eat of your sacrifices. Why does the Torah not tell us explicitly of Jerusalem's future centrality? The Bible has, of course, already testified to the city's unique nature. We know that it was in Jerusalem, then called Shalem, that Abraham met King Melchizedek, a priest who alone in pagan Canaan worships God Most High. We know as well that it was at Mount Moriah overlooking this city of Shalem that Abraham was ordered to offer Isaac. And yet God does not tell Abraham, nor does Moses announce in the Torah, where the tabernacle will reside in the Holy Land or where the temple will ultimately be built. And this perhaps is because God wishes for us to search for the temple site, to seek its sanctity. Thus, Psalm 132 opens with a striking description of King David. Lord, remember David in all his afflictions, how he swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob, Surely I will not come into the tent of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. What we have here is a description of David who has conquered Jerusalem, made it his capital, and yet is still unsure precisely where the ark will be placed, precisely where the temple will be built, precisely where the divine will dwell forever. Despite the fact that the Torah many times tells us that God will select a site for his indwelling, a locus of Jewish love and longing, and despite the hints in Genesis that the high point of Mount Moriah will be selected for that site, God never explicitly informed Israel where the temple will be built until the end of the book of Samuel. David, the psalm here is informing us, kept looking for a site holy enough for the temple in the vicinity of the city he had conquered. 
And according to Jewish tradition, only after David fully sensed God's presence atop Mount Moriah did God confirm that this would indeed be the locus of Israel's longing. The point, then, of this psalm is that holiness must be sought and sensed. Or as Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik put it, quote, knowledge of God is not just abstract in nature, it is dynamic, passionate, experiential, all-powerful, and all-redeeming. It is not knowledge in the ordinary sense of the word. It is ecstatic and perceptional, end quote. In other words, just as we can cultivate our sense of sight or taste or sound, so, Jews believe, we can cultivate our sense of the sacred. Strikingly, the continuation of Psalm 132 appears to indicate that David's search for the temple is meant to define our own experience of the Temple Mount now that that site has been explicitly singled out. The psalm continues. We will go into his sanctuaries. We will worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness and let thy saints shout for joy. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony, that I shall teach them. Their children shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. For the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. In other words, we are to learn to appreciate Jerusalem as the location where David sensed its sanctity, even before he was explicitly informed. And we are to sense how special David understood Mount Moriah to be, even before he was explicitly informed that it would be there that the temple would be built. Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik fascinatingly further points out that in Genesis, Abraham is never told to go to the land of Canaan. Rather, he's informed by the Almighty, journey to the land that I will show you. It was up to Abraham, Rabbi Soloveitchik argues, to journey and to sense the sanctity of the land toward which he was headed. Writing of Kiddushah, or holiness in Hebrew, Rabbi Soloveitchik put it this way, quote, Abraham was instinctively attracted by Kiddushah the way the bee is attracted by the nectar of the flower. And he adds, we are supposed to react to Kedushah the way the eye reacts quickly and sharply to a beam of light. In a word, the covenantal community is supposed to be equipped with a sixth sense enabling it to be spontaneously attracted by the holy and to discriminate between the sacred and the profane. End quote. We are now able to understand, ladies and gentlemen, the meaning of the passage in Deuteronomy. Seek out God's dwelling and eat there. Only after we have cultivated our own sense of sanctity of the sacred. Only after we have made David and Abraham sense our own can we truly experience eating in Jerusalem. Alinea in Chicago seasons with nostalgia. Jews in Jerusalem season first and foremost with holiness, allowing it to define all our other experiences. That is why sacrificial meals in Jerusalem are described as so joyful. And that is why Sabbath meals throughout history are so sustaining. The Talmudic tale of a Roman emperor failing to understand the secret Sabbath spice thus teaches us something profound. The meals of Roman emperors were hedonistic experiences. And if there was an emotion for the diners that seasoned the act of eating, it was fear, the overwhelming presence of power and tyranny. An article from NPR describes the scene, quote, the Roman banquet may well have been the original staging ground of gastronomic excess. Think platters of peacock tongue and fried dormice, chased down with liters of wine poured by naked waiters. But at the heart of all that gluttony was cold calculation. For the aristocrats who ruled this sprawling ancient empire, which at its peak under the soldier emperor Trajan stretched all the way from Britain to Baghdad, the banquet was much more than a lavish social meal. It was a crucial power tool. The banquet was a chance to follow the precept of keeping your friends close and your enemies even closer, 
says historian and Cornell University professor Barry Strauss. His engaging new book, Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine, profiles ten prominent emperors whose policies and personalities shaped the destiny of imperial Rome. They allowed emperors to display political power and wealth and dispense valuable favors to the invitees and monitor potential rivals. Even before there were emperors, members of the Roman elite held private banquets as a way to show off, network, reward friends, and dis enemies. End quote. Nothing could be more different then than the Jewish approach. Seek sanctity and eat there. The story of Abraham seeking the Holy Land and of David sensing the sanctity of the Temple Mount is for Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik an embodiment of what Judaism values most. The Bible describes those that lived before our patriarch, telling of the hedonistic drives of those that lived in the antediluvian age and of the undoing and spreading out of those that created the Tower of Babel. These are cultures that valued something other than the Abrahamic appreciation of Kedusha. As Rabbi Soloveitchik put it, the generation of the flood thought that beauty is fascinating and that it is man's duty to respond quickly to the aesthetic challenge, to succumb to the beautiful and pleasant. The generation of the dispersion thought that power is the idea that overwhelms man. Technological achievement takes man prisoner, making him worship the genius who made this kind of achievement possible. Abraham proclaimed to the world that Kedusha is the great attractive force. End quote. Cognizing sanctity is for the Torah the sixth sense. It drew Abraham to the land and David to Mount Moriah. And on Sabbath and in Jerusalem, it is what draws us all together. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.